When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's Tuesday, September 14th. From The Recount, this is the News Items Podcast. I'm John Ellis. Today, we're bringing you my interview with Jeffrey Stern, an award-winning journalist and author who has covered Afghanistan since 2007. I first met Jeff shortly after he graduated from Duke University as he was about to embark on his career as a foreign correspondent. I've been an admirer of his since then. Jeff has contributed to outlets including the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, and Vanity Fair. In 2019, he won an Overseas Press Club Award for Best Human Rights Reporting in Any Medium, and an Amnesty International Award for International News. We caught up recently to talk about his work, beginning with Afghanistan. His book, The Last Thousand, tells the story of a school there that, against the long odds imposed by poverty and war, produced remarkable students and a whole new world of possibility for young Afghans. Here we go. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, and it's good to see you after a while. It's been a long time. So going back to the beginning, I got a phone call from Chuck Rockefeller, no relation to the Rockefeller family, but nevertheless a great guy. He's a friend of your father's, and he yeah. says there's a guy named Jeff Stern. He's just graduated from Duke. He wants to report. Can you help him? I thought, well, you know, sure, I'd love to help him. And <laughs> the next thing I know, you were off to Afghanistan. Tell us how you got from graduating from Duke to reporting from Afghanistan. Well, I mean, a number of well-established, kind, and misguided people took pity on me and decided to help. <laughs> you know, I had written a few articles, a few sort of magazine-style articles, just in in my college's alumni magazine and the sort of local hippie alt-weekly. I hadn't written for my college newspaper or my high school newspaper. I did not have a ton of journalism experience, but I mean, honestly, I couldn't really get other jobs, and I always kind of wanted to write. <laughs> And I had stumbled into a number of kind of adventures just as an undergrad, you know, studying abroad and doing a story on something crazy and making some new friend that I never would have otherwise had the excuse to meet had it not been, you know, under the auspices of writing a story. So I sort of had that bug. I'd had an internship before my senior year in college at CNN Presents, you know, mm -hmm. the documentary unit, and they were working on an adaptation of the Peter Bergen book. Right. Osama bin Laden, I know the documentary was called In the Footsteps of Bin Laden. 
I mean, my role was almost really getting coffee. I, I, I was logging tape. And one of the producers said, oh, I have a friend who's the bureau chief for the Washington Post in Kabul and Islamabad, I think, who, and who's quitting and is coming home. And so I made this joke because there was sort of this open joke about how I was like the least experienced intern they'd ever had. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I'll take over. And it was like, ha, 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 yeah, like you'll take over. But then it sort of logged in my head that if I want to write, and I don't really have that much of a portfolio. I can't go to any editors and say, hey, I'm so-and-so. You know, maybe I can go someplace where the place will kind of speak for itself. I stepped off the plane in, I think it was September of 2007. But I had no connections. I got connected to you. You opened up this world of people who um, you sort of exposed to my hounding. And among them were, were people who put me in touch with web editors at some of the major publications. And I feel like that was right around the time when some of the big publications wanted original content on the web, not just right. repositories for their print reporting. And in a way, that really worked out well because that whole year there, I got paid a probably a few hundred dollars, but I got to publish some of these stories and that sort of bug only got stronger. To my mind, there are two great books about Afghanistan. One by Steve Cole is actually about Pakistan called Directorate S. And the other is yours, The Last Thousand. Can you tell our listeners the the story of that book? It's It's just an amazing book. And it means a lot. I appreciate the fact that you've read it and have heard of it. <laughs> so I... Again, through through luck, I met someone who knew someone who knew someone who was working at the American University of Afghanistan. And I got hired basically just to be a secretary. I mean, just to do sort of administrative work. And my boss was Afghan-American, which actually put me in kind of unique position, sort of forced some humility. And I think a lot of us, a lot of foreigners who travel there or anywhere, really, it's easy to, to sort of forget why you're there and, and who you're there, right. you know, ostensibly for. And for me especially, but I sort of wasn't allowed to because I literally, my paychecks were signed by, by an Afghan American who, who was a member of this ethnic minority. And he kept saying, you know, you, you say you're here to write, you say you're here to look for stories. You should check out this school in the, you know, in the slums. It's this serving the poorest kids and this ethnic minority. And yet they're doing so well and they perform the best on the college entrance exams. It's such a great story. And I remember thinking, what a boring story. That just doesn't sound interesting <laughs> at all. He was going out there once a week just to volunteer to teach a class. And he one day was sick or he couldn't go. And he asked me to go out for him. And I didn't want to, but he was my boss, so I kind of had to. And I went and to try to teach this English class, thinking that all it takes to teach English is to speak English. <laughs> I remember saying, oh, oh, actually makes an uh sound. I, you know, I'm really proud of myself. It's this, it's not intuitive. The kids don't know it. And one of the kids raised his hand and said, what about like food or, or roof or, and all of a sudden there's all these except I don't, I can't teach this language at all. And by the end of that first <laughs> class, one of the kids said, sir, we think we've taught you more than you've taught us. <laughs> so I just, you know, I kind of fell in love with this place and over the years tried to find different ways of staying involved. Never, it really never occurred to me to write about it. I, I, I did a grad school program, finished the grad school program, again, kind of like college, didn't, didn't have a job, wanted to write a book, didn't know what to write about. The headmaster of this school had decided around that time because the U.S. was beginning to signal that the troops were going to begin coming home. He decided to try to run for president. 
and he was there was there was no chance. No one he never thought it was he was going to win. It was sort of a Ralph Nader type of thing where you know maybe you can raise awareness for his sort of image of civil society and minority rights. And then eventually the wires crossed in my head, and I thought I should be writing about this minority community as it tries to deal with what happens as the troops leave, even though then it wasn't going to zero, but it was going to be a significant reduction in forces. And this is a community that had been given space to kind of thrive because for all the flaws of the international intervention, it allowed institutions, allowed communities like this to kind of, to thrive. And Jeff, tell us about the last thousand. Walk us through who the last thousand are, because that's sort of an interesting... Yeah, yeah. So this ethnic minority group, the Hazaras, Mm -hmm. there's there's actually not uh, a lot of agreement about where that term Hazara comes from. And one of the kind of most facile, the sort of, the explanation that stuck, that probably is at best an oversimplification, is that this community, they, they tend to look kind of East Asian. They have Asiatic features, which is unique in, in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's also sort of a question of why do they look like this? And so one of the theories is, well, they descended from Genghis Khan. And Genghis Khan left a unit of a thousand in the central highlands of the country. And the Persian word for a thousand is Hazar. So, you know, Hazaras are the ones who sort of descended from the thousand. Historically, that doesn't quite add up. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, there were a lot of Buddhists. You know, the spice route came through the Central Highlands. The giant Buddhas that were in Bamiyan preceded that. But it is kind of history that's been assigned to them. And I guess that's sort of maybe a little bit too cute thinking behind the title. First of all, it sounds cool, I thought. <laughs> but, right, but right. Then, <laughs> But I also thinking like this community is sort of, if there's a community that's going to be able to finally write the history for itself, it's this community, it's this school, it's this community. And it's sort of people like me who are a little bit responsible for the kind of oversimplification to sort of continue to ventilate. And so, you know, it's sort of a play on the last thousand as in Genghis Khan's last thousand, but also maybe this is finally when they can write their own history. Right. And the school itself at one point had 4,000 students, right? Then, mm-hmm. And a number of them accepted at Harvard University and Brown. Yeah. The head of the school had, what, a fifth grade education. I mean, right. how was he able to pull that off? It's a good question. I don't know that I have an answer to it. He's an extremely special person. He's, an, you know, he's sort of an amazing thinker. One way I try to understand it is I mean, you're right. He he had to he had to flee the country in fifth grade. He he had no formal education beyond that, but he was intensely curious, and so he would pick up schools of thought. He was a communist for a while. Then he was a you know a Shia scholar. Then he memorized the Quran. Then he was a humanist, and he would pick these things up like American kids pick up fashion trends or right. the iPhone covers or whatever. But he would just he would just immerse himself. Initially, he was just tutoring the children of other mujahideen. He had this extremely rich and varied and kind of eclectic collection of schools just sort of in his head. And so the, I, I think a combination of that and the fact that he was so intimately aware of war and was so personally and constantly touched by it that he was in, extremely motivated that people be sort of capable of, of critical thinking so that when some big man gets up and says, you know, my community needs to go fight this community, there would be a generation of young people who'd say, well, well, why? Right. Tell me why first. So I think it was a, maybe a combination of the fact that he had such a diverse kind of schooling, even though none of it was formal, and an intense 
motivation to kind of impart this. One of my favorite parts of the book is he's going around trying to get the parents of these young women or young girls to go to the school. And rather than make a case that education is good or whatever, the parents are culturally resistant. He, in your phrase, he went around as an investment manager, (laughs) (laughs) telling the parents that if she got this education, she would marry better and therefore have a better life. Was that his strategy all along or did it develop? No, it did did develop, but he, but it's sort of, I think a good example. I mean, he was not precious. It was, however, I need to do this. I'm going to do this. Even the kind of impetus behind pushing so hard for women to be educated, for young girls to be educated, even that was, you know, it was moral, but it was also kind of practical. His mindset was like, well, geez, this country's had, you know, like centuries of male leaders. And how's that worked out? Like, <laughs> right. That's time to try something different. He's devoted a significant part of your adult life to Afghanistan. As U.S. involvement in it anyway has, has wound down to nothing. When you think about it, what do you think? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sad. I'm, I mean, more, more than sad. Um, you know, in some ways, you knew this was happening. The, the book was kind of in anticipation of this maybe happening. But then I also think, and I think a lot of us think, well, I mean, did it, did it have to happen this way? I, I, you know, and I, I don't, I don't think it did. I, I, you know, we can't, we can't colonize places. We can't be at war forever. And yet, um, it feels like this really didn't have to be as as much of a disaster as as it turned out to be, and it's you know it's been hard hard to watch and hard to be you know and hard to care about people who are who are sort of stuck behind. And I guess a later conversation we can talk a little bit about about how some of us have tried to be engaged with that and and help some people get out. But there's a feeling of sort of grieving and. And that's that's me, you know, talking from my comfortable house, with, you know, without anyone knocking down the door to ask me who I'm talking to. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Jeff Stern. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. We have to get to the movies, of course. You wrote a book called The 1517 to Paris, which Clint Eastwood made into a hit movie. Tell us about how that came about and 
what it was like to work with Mr. Eastwood. I don't know if The Last Thousand had come out yet or it, or it had just come out. And I got a call from my agent saying that they had just signed these three young men who had stopped this terrorist on a train. And they wanted to put together a book. And I guess sometimes with these sort of in the news types of books, you know, they kind of sell themselves. Right. And here it was a little bit different because the, the incident, this sort of central action was, you know, 90 seconds uh, on a train. And also it wasn't immediately clear how to tell, a, you know, how to write an autobiography basically from three different right. perspectives. So rather than just being able to kind of hire any, any well-established author, I think that they kind of needed someone who was, you know, hungry enough to take a whack at, at actually like doing the research to put together a book proposal that, that may not sell. And actually what ended up happening is one, we got one offer for this thing that, you know, the, the boys were on like Dancing with the Stars and were all over the news, but there was only one publisher that thought, yeah, this, this could be a book. We became pretty close. I came to really love those guys. And the boys were um, at some awards show. I remember Spencer telling me, we think we could get Clint Eastwood to make this into a movie. We're going to give him the book and then he'll make a movie out of it. I remember telling him like, you're so naive. That's not how it works. And we're thinking like, why am I, how do I know? I've never done this before. I don't know how it works. And that's what they did. They handed him, literally handed him a copy of the, like a galley copy of the book, thinking that he was just going to like then decide to make a movie out of it. And I guess he then <laughs> decided to make a movie out of it. I had almost nothing to do with the, um, with the movie. I got to be on set one day, which was cool. And, you know, got to talk to Clint Eastwood for half an hour over lunch and uh, got to go to a premiere. Your next book is called Back in the Game, which is the story of the Republican Congressman Steve Scalise getting shot at mm -hmm. a congressional softball game. Baseball. I'm sorry, baseball, excuse me. And how did that come about? And tell us what the takeaway was on that. I got a call from my agent. We have a client who's trying to do this book. You know, or are you interested? And at first I, you know, of course I thought, no, I don't want to write a congressman's book. I, But at the time I was also beginning to put together a magazine story that was going to be pretty expensive to do and was going to involve travel to Yemen and also a lot of time and sort of prep so I thought just sort of practically, frankly, like having the money right. <laughs> would, right. would sort of fund my other. And then also the more I thought about it, the little I knew about this story was, you know, this person was shot. It was a partisan attack. But then the people who helped this person survive were just from every walk of life, you know, and every kind of part of the political spectrum. And he, in initial conversations with him, was very receptive to actually like promoting the idea of having the book be not really about him, of course, being partially about him, but also just diving into the different people and their stories who ended up in the right place at the right time to help him, which to me was both interesting. And I guess it's sort of the like self-important, like self-righteous mindset I had while being a hired gun to write a political memoir. <laughs> right. I was thinking this is kind of what we need, right? We need right. stories like this where you could end up with, you know, left-leaning liberals rooting for, you know, right-leaning conservative and, and vice versa. This is before, obviously, January 6th and before impeachment. And I think it'd be a slightly different calculus now, but made it feel like a, like a worthwhile project. Aside from these books, you have a, a huge body of journalistic work, articles for publications like the New York Times, Sunday Magazine, The Atlantic, etc., what were the most interesting ones that you worked on and wrote about? Mm. 
That's a good question. I mean, that one that I was working on kind of while working on this Elise book, the, the Yemen article, was one of the most intense stories I've worked on in good ways and in sort of traumatic ways. It involved kind of straddling several different worlds. The, the story is about a community that was building a water well in northern Yemen. And apparently the, the Saudi Air Force thought it was a TEL, a, a transporter erector launcher, a sort of a, a missile launcher, mm -hmm. and dropped a precision-guided weapon and on a bunch of civilians and sort of destroyed the water well and killed a bunch of people. But the story also goes into sort of the provenance of this weapon, which requires a little bit of an understanding of engineering and mechanics and aerodynamics. And actually, the company that built it, Raytheon, the, the people that I spoke to were members of the engineering union, mm -hmm. machinist union. And in a lot of ways, there were sort of like parallels between the, the people that I spent time with in Arizona and Tucson and the people that I spent time with in northern Yemen who were also sort of in, in kind of a collective mindset. So for a variety of reasons, maybe just because that one's kind of fresh, my mind kind of continues to go back to that story as sort of the, the hardest part of kind of war reporting and magazine journalism, but also the part that makes you feel privileged to be able to kind of immerse yourself in these different worlds, even when, even when it's pretty traumatic. You just sent me a piece you did about forest fires in Oregon, it's an amazing piece of work. Can you, can you take us through how that came to be? That was about, actually about a year ago, almost exactly a year ago. I had been working on a couple of very long-term projects and was kind of feeling lonely and isolated. Right. I mean, I guess we were all feeling lonely and isolated for different reasons. Um, and, you know, one of the things that was happening was the end of the summer. So, you know, I was seeing in the news about fires, about wildfires, mostly out West. And I have a friend who's a war photographer but just in his spare time, kind of as you do, he fights wildfires. Wow. And he had a list of a few story ideas. And this was one of them, this group of, they were calling themselves the hillbilly wildfires. It was a group of sort of ranchers and farmers and, and just community members who, when these two fires sort of converged on their town and all the federal resources were kind of tapped out, just decided to fight themselves. And for similar reasons to behind why I, I decided to do that Scalise book. It felt like a story that obviously had a fair amount to do with climate, but also was just about people, ultimately kind of a happy story, right. even in grim circumstances. Also for Atlantic readers, the coastal elites, <laughs> people in cities like, like me, I mean, it, it was sort of crazy to me. This story takes place 20 minutes from Portland, but at a totally different, there's so little cross-pollination between people in this community and people in Portland. It's like a different country, right? Yeah. yeah. I think we can leave it there. We'll have another occasion, many, hopefully many occasions to talk again. But uh, Jeff, thank you very much for doing the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank, this was great. And, and thank you for your help in making all this possible going back like 15 years now. I think it's 20. Actually. 20. <laughs> I owe you, brother. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Thank you Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in to the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was and is the great Ben McNamara. Tune in tomorrow for my interview with the journalist and author Steve Call, where we discuss... Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the Taliban.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.